Thank you, Jabez. Would you pray with me as we head into the Word? Lord, we do thank you for your great love for us, that you would send your Son to free us from our bondage to sin. Lord, we put that truth before our minds and our hearts this morning as we think on your word in this passage and what it means to live for you. And I pray that as we would look at your word this morning, you would work in our hearts, open our hearts, Lord, to what it means to live for you. Help us, Lord, along that journey as we seek to live that out and walk that out, we pray. We thank you for this time of year as we look ahead to Christmas, as we walk through Advent. And Jesus, we pray that you would help us to be a light in this world, just as you have lit our hearts with the truth of who you are and of your salvation. Lord, that you would send us out from this place as missionaries into this city, alive with your gospel. We ask these things in your name. Amen. We are hitting the second week of, of Advent as we head towards Christmas. As we've been doing last week, lighting the candle in memory of Jesus coming into the world as the light of the world. I've spaced them out accordingly so as not to start a fire. Figured that was appropriate. We don't need that much fiery light of that sort anyway. But here we are, back into 1 John, thinking about John as a family letter, sort of like the family letters you get around Christmas time. And here he is writing to fellow Christians about Jesus, getting Jesus, the historical Jesus, first and foremost, in their hearts and minds, and what it means to live for him. This is John's emphasis. I was reading this week, speaking of light, about uh, the proposed legislation to potentially do away with daylight savings. Or is it to stay with daylight savings forever? I don't know which one it actually is. But the whole idea is to not switch our clocks twice a year. And uh, that way, when you're driving home from work, it's not in the dark so much. I suppose this is the idea. And, and someone was citing that, you know, the, the longer darkness hours have actually led to increase in mental health problems and whatnot. And I can... I can certainly see that as true. I think for me, for me, lots of people talk about the, the snow and the cold of winter as being difficult. I just find the, the darkness of winter to be more difficult. I just, I like, I like the light. <laughs> I prefer the light. I don't, it's weird getting home and it's already dark. And uh, yeah, I feel like if we can have more light, brilliant, great. I guess we'll see what happens. But whether, whether or not that happens or not, it's interesting that for John, John picks up the imagery of light to talk about Jesus. And while we might think of it in terms of warmth and beauty and goodness, John, John picks that up as well and then takes it even further to describe God himself. Look at verse 5. He says, This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That whole idea of God as light is going to be sort of the focus of our passage today and what exactly that means. We learn that God is light because of what Jesus reveals about God. Notice that John goes back to talking about the historical person of Christ, right? This is the message we heard from him. Remember last week, he made a, made a point of, of talking about Jesus as the one we saw 
We heard him, we touched him, this real flesh and blood person who is also the word made flesh, God himself with us. This Jesus, this Jesus and his message that we heard from him and now are passing on to you is that God is light. It's interesting that John keeps going back to the historical Jesus. keeps saying we need to bring him front and center in our lives again. And a lot of scholars think if you look ahead at chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, people wonder, a lot of scholars think that there are, there's people in the church, and there's kind of hints throughout the, the book, that there's people in the church who are kind of stirring things up, potentially teaching some false teaching. This seems to happen fairly often. Um, some think these are some sort of prophetic type folks that are saying they're uh, speaking under the inspiration of the Spirit, but they're really not. It's sort of this alleged thing. And that happens both in the early church, but we see that today too. There's people who can stir up problems in the church or, or start to talk about a teaching or or espouse a certain way of living that's just slightly off from what the gospel teaches us, slightly off from what the Bible, or sometimes not even slightly, sometimes it's way off from what the Bible teaches us. If you go online, you could find any amount of strange thing out there, right? There's, there's no shortage of bizarre things you could find. But the question is, well, how do you assess if this is a church that's struggling with knowing what's true or not? How do they go about assessing the truth? What's the, how do you do that? How do you go about, especially if there's people who are purporting to speak on God's behalf but are, are off kilter in some way. What do you do? How do you assess if what they're saying really is from God? And it's like John is saying, you know what, you start by ensuring that whatever revelation they say they have is in line with the truth of God's word. You go back to Jesus. You go back to the message that is proclaimed and passed on to us. And so John's first response to them when faced with false teaching is to train his church that right theology has to be anchored in the person of Jesus Christ or else it will be shaped by any whim that may come along in life or along in our world. And so he begins with what is stated clearly about God and also by God in history. This is a good litmus test. If someone says, I've got a special revelation about a thing, it's important to go back to the Bible and make sure this lines up with God's Word. And it's worth noting, too, the Bible is not just a stockpile of information about God, but it is the revelation by God about Jesus. It always annoys me when I see um, books that are the such-and-such Bible, like, you know, like the Cook, the Baker's Bible, right? Or like the, the whatever-whatever's Bible, like hobbyist, like the gardener's Bible, right? But essentially, it's information. Like, it's information about gardening that's meant to be somewhat authoritative, but isn't necessarily. But that's not even to understand what Bible means. The Bible isn't just information about a subject. It's the it's the revelation of God's truth to us about Jesus. The Bible is one story, one epic story, one true story that is knit together in some profound ways that point to Jesus and who he is and what he's done in the world. So John says, let's go back to the historical objective person of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the gospel. God is light. God is light. This is the message we heard. 
the message we're proclaiming to you. It's no wonder that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I think of Acts 2, where they talk about sort of the life of the early church. And one of the things the church clung to was the teaching of Jesus, the apostles' teaching about Jesus. Not just about him, but in the way that Jesus taught, which was taking the law and the prophets, taking Israel's scriptures, and talking about how they reveal God's plan and purposes to save his world, how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. And the early church immersed themselves in the scriptures. They were grounding themselves in Jesus as the fulfillment of all those great promises in that sweeping story. We need to do the same, folks. We need to do the same. If we need to know what, who God is, God as light, as the revelation of who he is and what he's done, we need to immerse ourselves in God's word. The other thing that it means for God to be light is that he's the measure of holiness and living, which means it's not just my human effort that counts or, or my achievements or my works that somehow make me something special in life. It's God who sets the standard of holiness. It's as I abide in Jesus and live in him that I learn what it means to be holy. That's one of the best parts of, of that last song we sang, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, is I will not boast in anything no gifts, no power, no wisdom, which is picking up what Paul says about counting all of his accomplishments as lost for the sake of knowing Jesus. Paul, who's incredibly educated, who is incredi- has great status in influential spheres, says all of that counts for nothing for the sake of knowing Jesus. And I don't know how many of us would say the same, right? My career, my accomplishments in life, my education, those things are completely secondary so back burner compared to the central portion of my life, which is knowing Jesus and abiding in him. And if that's true, if we say, well, that is true, Jesus is the center of my life, then does the time we spend in our day-to-day life actually reflect that? I could say, well, Jesus is the center of my life, but I spend all my time thinking about my gifts, my power, my wisdom, or as Paul would say, my, my, basically my job and education. Right? If those things are what we worship, is Jesus really the center of our lives? But if God is light, he's the measure of what it means to find true life, to live well, to live as he calls us to live. And that also he's dividing what is true from what is falsehood. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. I think this idea of God as light is something that's picked up a lot through Israel's scriptures, right? You might think back to Moses at the burning bush, light and fire. You might think of God illuminating, illuminating Israel's path through the wilderness, right? Again, the, the, the cloud and the pillar of fire, illuminating their path, guiding them along the way. We might think of God's glory filling, uh, descending upon the tabernacle or later the temple, filling it with his glory. So much so that the Psalms can say, let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. This idea of God as brilliant, overwhelming light. And Jesus' own arrival, which most of us know, I'm sure, we've heard the verses, is described as light in the darkness. When Simeon sees baby Jesus, he calls him a light of revelation. Matthew sums up Jesus' earthly ministry by pointing back to Isaiah and the promise of light dawning into the world of darkness. And then, of course, we have Jesus' own words, I'm the light of the world which means that in and by him, 
we discover God's truth and holiness and glory. To be in the light of God is to be in his life and his love. And that's a, that's a good thing. That's the place we want to be. But there's kind of a catch. To be in the light of God also means to be exposed. It's revealing light. It means that God knows my identity. He knows my sins. He knows my motivations. All of that's laid bare before God if we are in him. And this is John's concern in verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. So what about you when you say you're in the light? Are you abiding in the light, allowing Jesus to root out the darkness in you? Or, as John wonders here, are you living a double life? Do you say you're in the light, but you cling to darkness? For John, that kind of division is impossible. To be abiding in Jesus isn't just a a private thing that doesn't affect my behaviors in the rest of life. It's a thing that impacts all of life, every facet of my life. It's not as though I walk in the light on Sunday and then I get to choose darkness on Monday, right? Or I walk in light with my family, but when I'm by myself alone, I get to choose darkness. It's not like that, says John. If we're in Christ, but habitually choosing darkness, we're living in a lie. We're deceiving ourselves. And so John calls the church, and there's a call for the church in any age, really, to be honest. Am I afraid of being in the light because it'll expose my errors? Am I afraid of really giving it all, all to Jesus because of what he may call me to give up? Is it easier to remain in darkness because I don't have to confront the sin in my life? And that may seem easier for a time, but John makes it pretty clear that living a double life, half in light or half in darkness, will only lead to turmoil and angst and despair. Jesus came to give us life, and that means living in the presence of God and allowing his light, his beauty, his goodness to gently and graciously but honestly expose our sin and expose our errors and then call us to repent and believe and receive his forgiveness and receive his salvation. You see how that works? If we're going to really turn our hearts to Jesus, there's really a surrendering of all of ourselves to him. And John says we need to be honest about that. And actually really live that out. Actually give it all to him. Even though that might be a bit scary. Allowing him to do that. The light expels the darkness. But also calls us into honesty about what's going on inside of ourselves. I like how he says this. If we say we have fellowship with him. But we're walking the darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. I like this idea of practicing the truth. It's almost like. You can live, it's possible to live out of sync with what's true about you as a Christian. You could, you could choose not to live it. Choose to live kind of off slightly from what's true. The truth, if you're in Christ, is you're redeemed. You're born again, we say. You're rescued. You're made a new creation. You're adopted into God's family. But it's possible to live out of sync with that. We need to be in the light, but if we don't practice the truth, we don't live it out, folks. We're actually living in darkness. Here's an example. It would be like saying, um, 
well, not just saying, it would be like being married, say you're married, um, but you don't live with your spouse and you never spend time with them. That would be like not practicing the truth of being married. You could say, well, I'm legally married, but I'm just, I'm never with them. I live in a different country. Not really interested in them at all. Well, are you really practicing the truth of being married, right? Or here's another example. It would be like saying, um, well, I have a job at such and such a place, but I just never go there. I don't work there. <laughs> yeah, I'm employed there, but I, I just don't show up. When it's time to go to work, I just don't go. That would be not practicing the truth of your employment, right? Eventually, there'd be consequences to both of those scenarios. There better be. Any good employer worth their salt is going to say, that's not worth, it's not worth keeping you. <laughs> and any spouse worth their salt is saying, hello, this is not what I signed up for, right? It's possible to live out of sync with what is true. And we need to choose to live out the truth of being in Jesus. That's what John's getting at here. We need to choose to live in what God has done for us. And that's a call to live coherently, to be aware of our own failings, to have an honest assessment of my own sinfulness, being really aware that I'm not perfect, so that we can then properly understand and live in God's amazing forgiveness and grace. Rather than habitually choosing darkness, even as a Christian, John calls the church to choose life with God, to live in him. Basically, folks, how we live should match the truth of what God has done in us. And that means that walking in the light, walking in relationship with Jesus, means we can't foster hidden sins. It means we can't foster deception. It means walking with honesty. It means walking with humility. And the results of seeking to live and walk in the light are twofold, says John. Look at verse 7. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, here's the first one, we have fellowship with one another. And the second one, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. Isn't it weird that he doesn't flip those? You think he would do the Jesus one first. If we walk in the light, Jesus cleanses us from sin. And then we get fellowship with each other. But John, John flips those. I mean, it's... I'm not going to make a huge point of that. I just think it's interesting that John, John does the, the horizontal issue first, the community life first, and then talks about the vertical dimension. Secondly, our life with God. But listen to this. Basically, he says, if you're living in the light, it creates genuine community with others. And the second one is it creates humility about our sin and openness to God, which leads to Jesus' blood cleansing us. And I want to look at both of those. The first is walking in a light leads to fellowship. And again, you think of a husband and a wife, and one of them keeps walking in darkness, keeps keeping secrets, keeps living duplicitously, is not really engaged in the relationship. That's not going to lead to joy and fellowship, is it? It's going to lead to a lot of breakdown. Darkness wants to cover up our sins, but walking in the light of God means admitting our sins, admitting we need help, admitting we need a Savior. It means coming clean about my problems, bringing them to the light so they no longer control me, so I can be truly alive and present in my relationships. And the genuine Christian fellowship that John talks about here is more than just 
between husband and wife, though. That's an example. But he talks about it as a whole community. Folks, genuine fellowship as a church is one of the key signs of a healthy church body. It's really important. In Acts, again, we see this. I'm reading an Acts commentary right now from a professor of mine, Dean Pinter. Dean, if you're watching this, love you. (laughs) Dean makes a point of this. I was reading it this week. He talks about how in Acts we see people coming from different cultures and different languages and different social stratum all coming together. Men and women, rich and poor, the educated, the uneducated, all coming together in fellowship around Jesus. That he brings them into a genuine fellowship together. And it's worth saying that our churches also need to reflect the diversity of our communities. I love that in our church, we have people from different backgrounds. We have a range of ages. We have a range of of social strata, we might say. Educated, uneducated. Everyone becomes brothers and sisters in Christ together as we center our lives around Jesus. And John is echoing this as well. When we walk in the light of Christ, we see it expressed in our devotion to caring fellowship. It's a sign of life for the church. And it's absolutely necessary, not just for the early church, but it is for the contemporary church as well. Yeah, fellowship just matters, doesn't it? it? There's a lot of things that are important for why we gather together, which is why the whether you can gather together or not as the church issue with COVID is, hits home. Because when we fellowship together, it actually confronts our loneliness. It confronts our, our isolation. It bolsters our defense against depression and despair and worry. This is why there's, there's, there's church leaders who are concerned. Oh, yes, we may not have to gather together because of COVID. But what about, okay, so we don't want people to get sick with COVID. But what about the rise in mental health issues and suicide that comes from people not fellowshipping together? That's a real issue. And that's why we gather. And that's why online services can only ever be a stopgap measure. They can't replace the physical gathered presence of the body of Christ. And the flip side is thinking the fellowship of believers as optional in your Christian life is to seriously misunderstand the heart of Jesus and the mission of God in the world. God's heart is to gather a people together from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's his heart. So true loving fellowship is so necessary, folks. And it's made possible because of our shared community in Jesus. And that shared life in the Spirit, as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. As we walk that out, it creates a fellowship that's deeper than our national bonds, deeper than our racial bonds, deeper than our political bonds, even deeper, as Jesus would say, than our biological bonds. Who is my mother and my brother, says Jesus? They're these ones around me who follow me. When we draw near to Christ, when we walk in the light, we want to work hard to cultivate the fellowship of the body. And when we stop caring about the body of believers, we need to seriously ask if we're still walking in the light. Isn't that interesting? that important for John. Being in the light means a genuine fellowship with others. It's interesting, um, during COVID, some of the people who have asked me the most questions about the logistics of gathering as a church, are you going to lay hands on people or not when you pray for them? 
Are you going to, what are you, are you going to make them sanitize when they come to the door, et cetera, et cetera, are Christians who don't come to church, who are, worried, who are interested in how it's going to work. I'm like, why don't you just show up? You'll find out. <laughs> Instead of having this half-hour conversation with you about it, just come. We figured it out, right? Just come on down. We're so concerned about how it works, but you don't actually come yourself. Are you walking in the light? John would ask the question. The second one, the big one, is the forgiveness of sins. It's by his blood, says John, that cleanses us from all sin. Sometimes we ask the question, why why does Jesus need to suffer? Why is his blood necessary? And I wanted to read this quote that I that I passed by this week as I was reading through Dean's commentary. I talked about it this way. He said, his suffering, his blood is necessary because we do wrong. When evil is done, something is broken, relationship is fractured. Say you borrow something from someone and they break it. Now they owe you. Either they pay the debt Or you forgive them and pay for the damages yourself. But either way, someone pays the cost of the damages. And that occurs economically, but it also occurs when we're wronged emotionally. We can make someone else pay for the cost, or we can choose to forgive the person who hurt us. But that forgiveness still costs us. It costs us to forgive someone who's hurt us. Something has to die. Our expectations die. We're asking for our bitterness or our anger to die. The point is this, that forgiveness always involves suffering for the forgiver. Hope of reconciliation only comes at the cost for the forgiver. And if we know this at a human level, we shouldn't be surprised that the way God forgives the sin of the entire human race is only through suffering on our behalf. John, uh, Jesus says in Mark 8.31, I must suffer. Either we pay the penalty for wrongdoings or Jesus must. Either we have justice inflicted on us or God through his son takes on the task himself to forgive us our debts. Jesus not only suffered to pay the debt of forgiveness because we do wrong, but because we are wrong. Our sin exists within us, leaves us separated from God. It's not enough to simply be good. We need Jesus. And though we didn't hear it in our reading this morning, I love this one of my favorite verses, verse 9. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For God is slow to anger, says Numbers 14, and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. So, whether we ditch daylight savings or not, Who knows what's going to happen with that, right? I encourage you, the much deeper issue, as John would say, to examine our walk. Are we living in the light of Christ or not? Are we as Christians choosing every day to live in the light? Or do we choose the darkness here or there? Do we make our relationship with Jesus first and foremost to center our lives on his redeeming blood his sacrifice that covers us and the flip side as john would say too not just a right relationship with god but to join in on that difficult sometimes (laughs) frustrating 
but ultimately worthwhile call of God to invest our lives in the local body of believers. And together, as we walk in the light, cultivate the Christian community that Jesus loves and longs for. And so today, as we head to the table, let's make this coming to the table this morning, folks, a choosing to walk in the light as Jesus is the light, to make him the center of our lives. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that this morning you are the light that comes into the world. We thank you that there is no darkness in you. And we thank you, Lord, that you invite us to live in the light, to be transformed and changed out of a life in darkness into a life of relationship and holiness before you. Lord, this morning as we come to this table, we pray that it would be a choosing for each one of us to say, Jesus, you are the center of my life. I want to follow you. And we thank you, God, for this great gift that as we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, none of us here this morning can say that we've got it all together. We all have brokenness. We all have sin in our lives. But Lord, we're along the way in the process of being transformed and sanctified through you. We thank you, God, that for each and every one who repents and believes, we are saved. We are made a new creation. But Lord, there's a journey before us, and you call us to walk in the light. This morning, God, as we come to the table, we want to lay down the sins in our lives, Lord. We just confess those in our hearts right now to you. The areas in our lives where we have chosen darkness, where we've lived out of sync with what's true where you've called us into relationship, but instead of being with you, we've said, no, I want to go live over here for a bit. I want to do my own thing. Lord, I just, I just confess this week, Jesus, of the ways that I have not lived in the light. Lord, this morning we, we pray that you would welcome us back to yourself. We know that you do. We love you, Lord. And we thank you that because of your shed blood on the cross, we can have fellowship with you, but also genuine fellowship with one another. And Lord, sometimes that's so hard. This morning as we share this common loaf and share this, this cup, it's a testament of saying we are one family together in you, Jesus. So Lord, as we come to this table, we pray, Holy Spirit, that your presence would fall upon us and upon these gifts as we celebrate your death and your resurrection and look forward, Lord, to that second advent when you will come again in glory. We ask these things in your name. Amen.